my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear stop what are you thinking we can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting <clears throat> hi folks uh, Chris Roseberry here just want to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you your generous gifts and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, February 15th, 2012. It's shaping out to be a normal week. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting excited about being back in my regular routine and doing the regular thing. <clears throat> Makes me happy. Maybe that's too much information. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the cleanup work and teach you how to listen with discernment. Now, once a week, we do a light edition of Fighting for the Faith. It doesn't mean that the topic is light. What that means is is that I turn over the microphone uh, or the radio program itself, you know, wholesale to a good lecturer. You know, I tried to you know scour the internet looking for good lectures that I think would do uh, you know do the job of building up and edifying the body of Christ in important doctrinal and theological um, topics. And uh, we've been working our way through a series of lectures presented by Dr. Michael Horton on the Great Commission, and we're going to continue with those today. And uh, we are up to lectures seven and eight. And so we're going to just dive right into it. I hope you enjoy it. Here's Dr. Horton. The uh, Great Commission is an urgent imperative. Uh, I started out by talking about the Great Commission as based on the great announcement, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And uh, I, I'm before we get to the clauses of the Great Commission itself, I want to finish up on the, the, the urgency of this imperative. And I think it's probably going to take two times for us to uh, get through some of the questions that are really urgent for us today 
not to overuse the word urgent throughout this talk. Uh, it's, it, it, we encounter it in our own circles of friends, family. Uh, we, we even encounter it in our own hearts and minds. It's perfectly natural that since we are ourselves, the missionaries, living in a mission field uh, where nothing can be taken for granted, uh, that we ourselves sometimes wonder about how much people have to believe. Does someone have to actually exercise explicit faith in Christ in order to be saved? And this has become one of the critical questions in our day, and I think it's one of the things that's making the missionary imperative, that's doling the missionary imperative uh, in in evangelical circles. Uh, and so I want to... I brought the subject up last week, and I said this week I'm going to focus on one of the major arguments that inclusivists often make, namely, what about the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets, and especially the noble pagans that you find in the Bible like Melchizedek and Job, uh, what about uh, you know Paul's citation of pagan poets in uh, Acts 17 on Mars Hill. Uh, doesn't all of this suggest that 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 God reveals Himself generally, uh, universally, in ways that are sufficient for their salvation apart from explicit knowledge of and faith in the gospel? Uh, I ended last week by quoting Larry Hurtado, a great New Testament scholar at the University of Edinburgh who uh, says, whatever people want to believe today, it, uh, as a New Testament scholar, he says, it is, it is uh, beyond any reasonable doubt that the early Christians believed, uh, the, the, the early Christians held this view. The early Christians were willing to be candles in Nero's garden because they held this view. Had they held this view, they wouldn't have been candles in Nero's garden. They would have been odd, but in a cosmopolitan Roman Empire that was full of oddities, and the more the merrier. Uh, but this, this made them dangerous. There is no salvation in any other name than the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That, that was the dangerous announcement, the, the dangerous claim, and it's in all of the earliest sources. Now, we know that there are exceptions, uh, for ex uh, exceptions, that is, to people call, uh, calling on the name of the Lord explicitly for salvation. For example, David, at the death of his seven-day-old son, whom he had with Bathsheba, uh, acknowledged that they would be reunited today at last in heaven, 2 Samuel 12, 23. And in the New Testament, as in the Old, the children of believers are holy along with their parents. Uh, they are comprehended within the covenant of grace. Genesis 17.7 uh, gives that as the rationale for circumcision. Acts 2.39, the promise is for you and for your children. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.14, where Paul says even one believing parent sanctifies the child, makes the children holy, which is a, an enormous comfort to, uh, to, to uh, households where only one parent is a believer. Uh, so we have on this, on this basis, uh, 
Reformed Christians have held, as the canons of Dort uh, teach, that, quote, godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children, whom it pleases God to call out of this life in their infancy. What a wonderful promise that is based on the promises of Scripture. But we don't have any passages that tell us what happens to everybody else. What about all of the other children who die in infancy? Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. But what happens... What, you know, do, where, where, do we have any basis in Scripture for knowing what happens to the children of unbelievers? Or to those who, through a physical disability, uh, cannot understand the gospel or respond to the gospel? And here, I think that, that what we do have enough Scripture for to assert is that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion, and that God is a compassionate Lord, that he is, he, he is, is uh, uh, always uh, uh, liberal <laughs> and lavish and extravagant in his love and in his mercy. And this is good news because, it means if you're, if, frankly, if you're an Arminian, you have a lot more problem with those cases because... Uh, if they can't exercise their free will properly, they're lost. There's no way that because it all depends. They're born again by making a conscious decision for Christ. Uh, but we we believe that we 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 make a conscious decision for Christ because we're born again, and so the Holy Spirit can do this through the gospel, with or without any evidence from the subject actually believing. And uh, this, is, th- this is, so we, we know what's possible, what scripture tells us is possible. What we don't know is what God does in any specific instance if he hasn't told us. And so that's where we, that's where we have to be careful. Uh, salva- because salvation is of the Lord, God is not tied down by our abilities or disabilities. God can can save whom he will uh, in extraordinary ways as well as ordinary ways. But what the scriptures focus on are the ordinary ways, not what God may do in his sovereign grace, but what he has promised to do in the gospel. And that's where the emphasis falls in the New Testament. It always falls on explicit knowledge of and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Exceptions cannot determine the rule. Mark's version of the Great Commission includes Jesus' words, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. That's the ordinary. Westminster Confession has a nice codicil uh, when it says, uh, uh, a nice disclaimer when it says, Ordinarily, there is no salvation outside the church. (laughs) It's a great word. And that's right. That's the way to say it. All of these passages tell us what ordinarily happens, and it's none of our business what extraordinarily happens. Whatever God may do, the Great Commission is concerned with what he has promised to do through his word. 
The Great Commission is bound up then with that hell question that many uh, evangelical inclusivists say they're not qualified to speak about. Well, I'm interested in being a missional Christian, not in the hell question. Well, the Great Commission is the forgiveness of sins so that you won't go to hell, among other things. (laughs) The Great Commission is all about not being condemned. And if that is what it's all bound up with, then being missional must be about something other than the forgiveness of sins, proclaiming the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ to all nations. Where God is silent, inclusivists often offer their own speculation. So they're silent on the hell question where they're just, you know, Jesus is talking all over the place. Oh, well, we can't know. We can't, you know, agnostic about... Uh, Uh, questions that are very clearly addressed by Jesus and the apostles. Uh, But when it comes to uh, questions about uh, these extraordinary cases, they're just, they know what's going to happen. It's just amazing how there's sort of agnosticism where there shouldn't be and certainty where there shouldn't be. In the early third century, Origen, church father Origen, offered a synthesis of Christianity and Platonism in which he argued that, you, you, you don't worry, things may not be bright the first time around, uh, but you don't, you, you know, there isn't only one life to live. You have a lot of chances at this. You'll be reincarnated based on your uh, performance in this life, and it's a, your soul is being purged through these various reincarnations. And... Eventually, when it's all over, and Christ is the great moral teacher, when this is all over, your soul will finally be so purged, if you do well, uh, your soul will finally be so purged that ultimately all souls, not bodies, but all souls will be reunited, even the devil and his angels. And we'll all live happily ever after as disembodied uh, souls uh, reunited uh, in the great one. It was obviously more platonic than it was Christian. Uh, His views were condemned at the Fifth Council of Constantinople in 553 A.D. And uh, so Origen has not uh, had a very prestigious pedigree uh, in the history of the church. But there are a lot of people in the modern age who want to revive Origen, who think that Origen is a great uh, church father and we ought to reconsider some of his aberrant views. There are others who say, well, we're not originists. We're not following origin here, but, uh, you know, God's sovereign grace is greater than all of our sin. And I call this a hyper-Calvinist version of inclusivism. My friends who hold these views don't like it when I put it in those terms, but uh, Karl Barth and Jürgen Moltmann are two examples of this. Uh, Karl Barth, uh, the great 20th century uh, theologian, uh, said that God has elected everybody in Christ. Christ has become the reprobate one for all people, and in him their reprobation is, is done away with, and they are all chosen, they're all elect, they're all redeemed in Christ at the cross, They're all justified already. They're all 
they're, they're saved. Their, their sins are forgiven. All of this has, has already happened. And we still should have missionaries and evangelists to tell them that this has happened, you know, to, to, to uh, inform them of their election and redemption and justification. They should at least find out about it. Uh, however, Bart said, I'm not sh- I, I, when, when asked, when really pressed, do you believe that every single person will be saved? He says, we can't say that. We can't say that because if we said that, God would no longer be sovereign. And so we believe uh, that it is, it is his saving will, his saving purpose, his saving election to save every person, but it's possible that we have to leave that door open, which is a horrible thought when you think about it. Uh, I, and I wish he kind of had the guts to just go with the whole thing to the very end, heresy that it is. Nevertheless, be serious about it. Hold on to it. To the very end, be consistent because everything he thought he would gain out of that, namely total objectivity of grace, he lost because now you could be elected, you could be one of God's chosen people from all of eternity. Christ could have atoned for all of your sins. You could be justified. And at least it's an open question because God is sovereign. You could be damned. I mean... We believe whoever believes. (laughs) There is therefore now no condemnation. God cannot condemn us. His sovereignty cannot trump his justice. God cannot. He doesn't have the ability to condemn us. Because he has promised us everlasting life through faith in his son. And he has given us that life. And even if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God would be unfaithful if one of the elect perish. That's why Jesus said, I give my life for my sheep and not one of them will perish. Jürgen Moltmann takes away the question mark. Jürgen Moltmann, another one who claims to be a reformed theologian. He's still alive uh, Today, a German Reformed theologian says uh, the very idea of people being able to decide to go to heaven or hell is Pelagian. If if God's sovereign mercy is the sole basis for salvation, then everyone is saved. Of course, the, the assumption here is that God has chosen to save everyone and that if God says only those who believe will be saved. We must be saying with Arminians that it is on the basis of faith, not through the instrument of faith that people are justified. So it's a confusion of categories. A more moderate case for inclusivism on the basis of God's sovereign grace has been made uh, by Terence uh, Tyson in a book uh, published by InterVarsity Press a few years ago. But most inclusivists fall on the Arminian or Roman Catholic side of the argument. And this is basically that uh, God has given everybody free will, and he's given everybody general revelation, and he will hold everybody accountable for responding with their free will to their ability, based on what they know, 
That will be the, that will be the, the uh, uh, criterion for God's judgment on the last day. So those who are given a lot of revelation, those who understand a lot, will be responsible for more than those who don't understand anything. This is in Roman Catholic theology known as the idea of the anonymous Christian. You know, a lot of people are Christians and they don't know it. Uh, atheists show, according to the Second Vatican Council, atheists show that by their good works that grace is at work in their hearts and whether they have explicit faith in Christ or not, Christ has saved them. And this is the view that Arminian evangelicals like Clark Pinnock and John Sanders and others have appealed to. Uh, the problem with this, of course, is that general revelation reveals the law. Only special revelation reveals the gospel. And so, of course, you have a general universal revelation, but here's the... Here's the big difference. For Rome and Arminianism, general revelation is like a dimmer switch. It, it, you have less of it in Buddhism, less of it in Islam, little more of it in Judaism, and full strength in Christianity. Whereas Reformed Christians say, you have full strength revelation of God, his existence, and his judgment in the law, in general revelation, you have no revelation of the gospel. It's not that you have less revelation of the gospel than you do in John 3.16. It's like, yes, you don't have any. The Grand Canyon is beautiful. The Grand Canyon tells me that somebody made this. The Grand Canyon tells me that whoever made it is very powerful. Uh, the Grand Canyon tells, tells me lots of things. I know from my own inner moral compass that certain things are right, certain things are wrong, and whoever it is behind it all is kind of mad at me. I feel guilty, and I don't know why, but I feel guilty. Every religion is trying to deal with guilt. Why? Because everybody knows they're guilty from general revelation. Only special revelation reveals the gospel, the answer to that guilt. And so right at the very... Uh, beginning of it all, the problem with inclusivism is that it assumes, at least this Arminian and Roman Catholic version of it, assumes, number one, that we have the ability after the fall to respond properly to any revelation, and number two, that we have a saving revelation in nature. Whereas the scriptures teach Otherwise, the scriptures teach that you have to have a herald to bring this good news. It's not something that four out of five Americans just naturally know. It's something that has to be proclaimed. It has to be announced. It has to be shouted from the rooftops. So in the, the view of inclusivism, the gospel itself is no longer an announcement of the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name, Jesus clarifies and embodies the moral way of living that all people know already deep down in their hearts. And if they live according to that as much as they are aware of it, they'll be okay. God's nice, I'm nice, so let's be nice. That's sort of the gospel. Uh, 
Yet the Apostle Paul says very clearly that there is general revelation. Everybody knows God exists and everybody knows that God is just and righteous. But he says, Romans 1.20, this just leaves all people without excuse. He doesn't say this leads people to anonymous Christianity. He says it leaves everyone without excuse. And so we can never really say God is unjust if you have a, 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 a people somewhere in the world that has never heard the gospel, God would be unjust to condemn them because Paul's argument there is that they have heard from God. They have this natural revelation. They have this general revelation. And even that they suppress in unrighteousness. And they would do the same with the gospel. So would we. Have the Holy Spirit not seized our hearts. Changed our hearts. So Paul asks, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Like he's answering this, he's stepping right into this debate. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Rather, through the law comes knowledge of sin, (laughs) not knowledge of salvation. But now, he says, the righteousness from God, which is through faith, has been revealed, to which the law and the prophets testify, namely that all who believe in Jesus Christ will be justified. The apostle's point is that apart from the gospel, there is no saving revelation. Okay, so now what do we what do we say about uh, the argument that you have Old Testament saints and noble pagans who don't really believe in Jesus Christ? Surely Abraham didn't believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, you know what do you Melchizedek, Job, uh, Cornelius, the centurion uh, in Acts? What do you do with these people? Well, it's certainly the case that they couldn't have passed a a general doctrine examination, uh, uh, you know, if you've given them, given them the questions that are asked here for church membership, they would, half of them, they would say, huh, I, I'm not, what? I'm not sure what you're talking about. The question is not whether they knew as much. The question is whether the object of their faith was, though faintly perceived, the same object of faith as ours, namely Jesus Christ. What do the scriptures teach? On this matter, they teach very clearly that the Old Testament saints shared the same faith that we we hold. Jesus, uh, well, 1 John the Baptist uh, said, your father, uh, uh, or or, no, Jesus says in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. What what you're seeing right now happening before your eyes, Abraham rejoiced to see it. He saw it and was glad. Now he saw it from afar, but he saw it and was glad. Paul reminds us, Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Same righteousness that we're justified by. Know then 
Galatians 3, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed, is not equivalent to he was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. But it's the same content under types and shadows. Faintly known, faintly understood, but understood enough for him to place his faith in. And Paul calls that the gospel. It is the gospel. In in Abraham's seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's the gospel. Not as fully expounded as in the New Testament after the cross and resurrection of our Lord, but it's the gospel nonetheless. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that uh, Abraham and Sarah are among those who, like Abel, Enoch, and Noah, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Hebrews 11:13. Well, what about what about the others very quickly here? What about Melchizedek, strange figure? We we don't know much about him, but one thing we do know about him is that he was not a noble pagan. He couldn't possibly have been a noble pagan. First of all, he was the king of Salem, proto-Jerusalem. He was identified as priest of God Most High, and God Most High, El Elyon, was identified as none other than Yahweh, God Most High, in Genesis 14, 18 through 22. He was a worshiper of God. He was not only a worshiper of Yahweh, this particular God of Israel, he was high priest of this particular God and king of this incipient city of Jerusalem. Drawing on Psalm 110, Hebrews 7 clearly interprets Melchizedek as a type pointing forward to Christ. Nor can Job qualify as an anonymous believer. Job's allusion to Psalm 8.4 in Job 7 verses 17 and 18, and direct quotations of Psalm 107.40 and Isaiah 41.20, as in Job 12.21 through 24, place him squarely in the covenant community. He's quoting the Psalms. This is not an anonymous atheist or an anonymous uh, Hittite, uh, uh, an anonymous Baal worshiper. This is... This is a Yahwist. This is someone who is worshiping the one true God along with the rest of the covenant community. In fact, Ezekiel 14, verses 13 and 14, place Job uh, along with the prophets uh, as uh, one of the great prophets in Israel's history. So Job was not a a, a pre-Abrahamic figure uh, unknown to the... uh, to the covenant community. Uh, last example here, Cornelius. Well, you know Cornelius, a re- Roman centurion. He's called a God-fearer. Uh, he was saved, and it uh, doesn't seem clearly, you know, he became a Jew, 
what do we do about uh, Cornelius? Are you a Cornelius-type believer, anonymous Christian? Does Cornelius qualify as an anonymous Christian? Well, in in Acts 10, he's not described as a noble pagan, but as, quote, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. And the epithet God-fearer meant a Gentile who went to synagogue and said, I believe this, and prayed the, uh, uh, the conf- said the confession with the rest of the Jews, the Shema, and uh, yet, yet wouldn't undergo circumcision, had not yet been circumcised. They were called God-fearers. That's what he was. Furthermore, God appealed to Cornelius in a vision, telling him to send for Peter, who would explain the gospel to him. This is an extraordinary evangelistic case. But even in an extraordinary situation, God would not have Cornelius become a Christian apart from the proclamation of the gospel through a messenger. Even in an extraordinary situation. Then Peter received a vision alerting him to this meeting with Cornelius and his Gentile cohorts. And the apostle proclaimed Christ's death and resurrection. This is what Peter said, part of what Peter said. To him, all the prophets bear witness. There Again, all the prophets bear witness to him, not to something else. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these very words, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and they were baptized. Where's the anonymous part? (laughs) This is just a regular conversion. The only thing extraordinary about it is uh, it took, you know, God with Peter and this whole Gentiles are okay thing. God had to kick him a lot with visions. You know, it it wasn't (laughs) poor Peter just could get it from Paul. He had to have uh, uh, Jesus Christ knock him upside the head a few times in visions. And now he's starting to get it. And then by the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, he's finally saying, okay, same with the Gentiles as the Jews, no difference. We're all saved by grace. So this is, none of the examples cited by inclusivists turn out actually to describe a noble pagan. They didn't know as much as we know in the Old Testament but they knew the same thing that we know. Namely, the gospel that God would crush the serpent's head through the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham and Sarah, not Abraham and Hagar, that he would forgive Israel her sins, even though she was sent into exile. God would still be a father to her and draw not only a remnant from Judah and Israel, but from all of the nations to the true Zion, which is Jesus himself. And this became Clearer and clearer and clearer. It's not the law, it's not the gospel that becomes clearer and clearer and clearer in general revelation, but the law. It's the gospel that becomes clearer and clearer and clearer in special revelation, from Genesis to Revelation. The same object of faith they had with us, but a differing degree of understanding. And Paul says, God has put up with your indolence long enough. Now, 
he's raised Jesus from the dead, and all bets are off. (laughs) That's what he said in the Areopagus in Acts 17. God overlooked a whole lot of ignorance. I don't, uh, you know, whatever that means, I I mean, there's a lot, uh, we'll see some surprising people in heaven probably. It'll shock us who's in heaven. God overlooked your ignorance in times past, but now he's calling everyone everywhere to repent. For he has appointed a day when he will judge the world, and he has given proof of this by raising this man, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Olinda? The, the children of believers have the promise that that if they die in infancy, they will be they will be saved. Well, that's you know the 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 assumption there, the presupposition there is dying in infancy because they haven't had an opportunity to express faith in, in the gospel. Uh, or to reject it explicitly, the one thing we cannot say is that anybody, including the children of believers, will be in heaven because they're not, they don't deserve to go to hell. You know, everybody, including the children of believers, deserves everlasting condemnation. Anyone who is saved either by extraordinary or ordinary means will be in heaven because of God's mercy. But we still pray for even adults, uh, adult children. Believers pray for adult children that they will come to a saving uh, knowledge of Christ, that God will, uh, God, God will, and we cling to that promise that he will be a God to us and to our children, even if our children are, are grown and, and out of the house, uh, have children of their own. Uh, but uh, but the, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And even in the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, uh, you know, it's J- Jacob and Esau and, and uh, Ishmael and Isaac, and God always maintains his prerogative to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. But we keep praying. Yeah, good good question. Does dispensationalism sort of play, uh, uh, play into this a bit by suggesting that there are different programs of salvation? Um, first of all, there there is uh, kind of a, a a caricature afoot that dispensationalism dispensationalists teach that. People are saved, that the Jews in the Old Testament were saved by works and we're saved by grace. You're not saying that, but there is a, it's important to not uh, presuppose that in conversations with dispensationalists because if they, if they know their dispensationalism, they will refute that. Uh, that's uh, an extreme position. My grandfather held that, but he was more extreme than, than uh, C.I. Schofield. But, uh, there is, in, in, in sort of uh, traditional dispensationalism, they, they would say every, anyone who's been saved has been saved by grace. 
But I think, I think where you, you are onto something is when you start talking about different programs of the kingdom of God, uh, where God deals with different people differently, with different messages, and uh, offers Israel the kingdom, they don't take it, so he gives it to the Gentiles and so forth. Um, especially when you have Jews in the millennial kingdom restoring the temple sacrifices and everything that Hebrews says it would be a sacrilege, <laughs> uh, then you're really, you're really talking about two separate peoples. So why not two separate plans of salvation? Yeah. I don't think they. I don't think dispensationalism has really uh, fostered very much of this. I think I can see how you could probably have an inclusivist who is defending inclusivism on dispensational principles, but really, reformed people are are more involved with this than dispensationalists, I'm sorry to say. I mean, this is reformed people who are, who are redefining reformed theology to be universal election. So they're not really reformed. But people who claim to be reformed, uh, this, is, this is really a... Uh, now remember, with this view, Christ saves. You're not saved apart from Christ but you don't need to hear Christ and you don't need to believe in Christ. Uh, This view says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? How blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. All right, let's uh, close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us a gospel that is so clear uh, and a remedy so profound that uh, we are, 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 are filled with thanksgiving sufficient to, to uh, take this good news and share it with everybody around us. I pray that you would fill our hearts with thanksgiving and praise for your marvelous grace and that uh, instead of wondering about those things that you have not revealed, we would revel in those wonderful promises that you have clearly taught us in your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to pause between lectures, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? 
Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Quando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they're not giving you the goods. That is preaching Christ and Him crucified for your sins. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can 
partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, here is lecture number two in our uh, light edition of uh, Fighting for the Faith today. Here again is Dr. Michael Horton. Well, we are, uh, in case you, you don't know, and you probably don't because I've lost my place uh, so many times, this fall has been like uh, Swiss cheese, just holes in it all over the place. Uh, and so it, you kind of lose some momentum and consistency in uh, the Sunday school uh, hour um, when, when uh, I, uh, we can't, none of us can remember what I was talking about last. But what we've been doing basically up till now is talking about the first clause, go into all the world, and then uh, we're going to turn next week, if I finish what I'm supposed to do this week, we will turn next week at last to make disciples. What does it mean to make disciples? Uh, And so today we're finishing up that whole section of... uh, the uh, Great Commission, that first clause, go therefore into all the world. And we've, t- we've t- talked about what it means for the gospel to be an imperative, an urgent imperative uh, to uh, be taken to the whole world. Why, why the Great Commission, rather, is an urgent per- imperative to take the gospel to the whole world. There is no salvation in any other name than in Jesus Christ. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We don't know what he's promised to do with others. And uh, so we can, we can uh, uh, entrust our uh, questions to God, who is always just and merciful, when it comes to the questions about people who have never heard the gospel and are in uh, uh, a situation where, for, for instance, they're mentally handicapped or they are able, uh, they, they are uh, uh, children of unbelievers who die in infancy. Uh, all of those questions become primary questions for those who want to say that salvation is found outside of personal faith in Jesus Christ. We can't do that. All we have are passages that tell us Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, that's what we have revealed. And so the exceptional cases are precisely that, exceptional. We leave it in the hands of the Lord. Our responsibility is to the ordinary, what God ordinarily, uh, the means that God has ordinarily promised to use. But even if we agree that faith comes through hearing the gospel, the command to bring the gospel to all nations requires sensitivity to diverse cultural contexts. Um, at one extreme, there is this sense that uh, we don't interpret the Bible through, our, through any cultural lens. It's a very dangerous view because it doesn't realize just how uh, culturally 
captive it is. I just read the Bible straight down the line, as, uh, as a TV evangelist once told me. I asked about predestination. He said, oh, I don't, I don't know about that, but I just believe the Bible straight down the line. <laughs> and the idea was, of course, that he doesn't, he doesn't follow all these man-made theologies and philosophies. He's not influenced by anything. He just goes to the Bible. No blinders, no glasses, no spectacles. That's one extreme. At the other extreme is that we are so bound by our cultures and our language and our upbringing that there is no truth. And the only truth is what you've been told by your superiors. And truth is kind of a uh, power tool to use to uh, sort of lord it over uh, other, other people. And so there's a kind of cynicism about truth at the other end of the spectrum. Too much confidence in our ability to know the way God knows on one end, and too much skepticism about us being able to know anything even as creatures at the other end. That's the morass in which we find ourselves. And we hear it again and again today. Uh, we have both of these ends of the spectrum today when it comes to missiology and discussion of uh, evangelism and missions. Um, the apostles and early Christians usually had to meet secretly, although they proclaimed the word in public wherever possible, in the synagogue and the marketplace. Uh, fellow believers, even today, in persecuted uh, churches, un under uh, a threat of, of personal safety for preaching the gospel, or even converting, uh, recognize this situation of the early church a lot more than we do. In Muslim countries, for example, Baptism is of much greater significance than it is for us. Well, no, we have a very high doctrine of baptism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. High doctrine of baptism. <laughs> you know, all right, fine. That's, and, 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 and we really, we're, we're, we believe that baptism is very important. Don't discount that. But what happens when you go to a Muslim country and you hear these, these stories about what happens to people in Muslim countries who uh, are now marked and could be decapitated the following week. They don't have a nice tea with the pastor uh, and their closest friends from church after the baptism. They are trying as much as they can to be discreet about letting anybody know. That's a... Baptism is basically sealing your death, is your death warrant in many Muslim countries. Um, far more than a, 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 merely a ritual, going, going through a ritual as it is in many Western countries, the Lord's Supper is a dangerous communal meal in such contexts. So context shapes the way we carry out the Great Commission. Contextualization is the big word for this, though. Uh, it, it's a fancy word that comes from the world of sociology migrating into missiology, the study of missions, and now pervades the practical theology curriculum at many seminaries. Uh, and so there, 
On one hand, there is a laudable appreciation for the variety of cultures. Um, you know, I think sometimes there is uh, on the right, uh, cultural right, this, this critique of multiculturalism uh, that doesn't really appreciate how important it is for us to think multiculturally after the way we had been thinking for a long time. And that's true in missions as well. It's very easy for us, have been, very easy for us in the Western world to take the Christian faith to other parts of the world and not even know how Western our gospel is, how much our culture permeates everything that we do. The joke was that when the British missions, uh, missionaries uh, came, it was Jesus and three o'clock tea on the dot every day. That was sort of the gospel. Uh, now that's an overstatement, uh, an overgeneralization, but we don't realize how much our cultures do play a role in how we present the gospel. So the recognition of diversity is welcome. In fact, God is a diverse God. Uh, we're not Muslims. We don't believe in a, 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 a unitary God, uh, but in one God who is one in essence and three in person. We don't actually encounter one essence. What we encounter when we encounter God is always the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, on the last day, we're not going to meet one God. We're going to meet the Father who is God, the Son who is God, and the Holy Spirit who is God. So all, already we have diversity within unity as the fountain of all being, as the source of all existence. God likes diversity. He invented it. And then He made us in His image with male and female. Difference and unity. In the image of God he made them, male and female, the text says. Isn't that interesting? So the image of God is their universal, what they share in common, their, their essence as human, but He made them as different from each other, male and female. And then at, at Babel, everybody tried to get together, Genesis 11. They tried to, you know, let's... Let's homogenize everything. No difference. Let's make everything the same so that we can consolidate our power in one place. Kind of like New York and London and Hong Kong concentrated in one institution. And let's build a tower reaching to the heavens to make a name for ourselves. Let's, let's have everything in common. Let's, let's not have any diversity. Let's put all of our heads together and have one culture, one language, one world, one, one government, and the Spirit descended and scattered the nations as a judgment. But at Pentecost, He brought them back. At Pentecost, as people gathered, Jewish, Jews and Jewish proselytes from all over the world gathered for the Feast of Pentecost, something strange happened. Here it wasn't people building a tower to the heavens, but the Spirit descending to the earth, making a temple that He would indwell. 
nothing less than the body of Christ. And as he did that, we read, and each person heard the gospel in his own tongue. That's what speaking in tongues was. Speaking in tongues was not a private prayer language. It wasn't Shudabata Honda, Shudabata Honda, Shudabata Honda. It was, <laughs> it was a real language. A real intelligible language that you never learned. That's why it was supernatural. That's why it was a miracle. Because it was, remember, everything is about the gospel. Everything, everything, everything is about the gospel. It's not about giving people their own private keys to the spiritual car. Everything is about the gospel. So even tongues, the gift of tongues was given so that the gospel could get to India, China, and Turkey really quickly. And it did. So people are here gathered and they hear the gospel each in their own language. And what this tells us is that God brings in the cultures of the nations. He doesn't leave them at the door. He brings people in with their cultures, with their language, with their race, with their ethnicity, with their gender. He brings all of them into His kingdom. But there is one gospel. One gospel, many languages, many cultures. So that's one of the things that we find at Pentecost. We find cultural diversity, but gospel unity. We find it exactly the opposite today in much of Christianity uh, in North America. It can be all over the map when it comes to the gospel. Be all over the map when it comes to common worship and common uh, prayer and common beliefs. But there's remarkable cultural Hegemony or sameness. Isn't that... It, it's, it's striking. You, the same age, you, you go into a lot of churches and it's the same age group. It's the people with the same voting patterns. It's the people who all look alike, who all sound alike, who all think alike, except when it comes to the gospel. You can believe anything that you want. It be exactly the opposite. It's important for us to realize, too, that sin is universal. The sinful condition is universal, but is socialized differently in different cultures. Sin in fundamentalism is reduced to action, things that we do. Uh, oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. That's sin. Um, liberation theologians reduce sin to social structures. Reformed theology has always seen that sin is both. Uh, sin is both actions and a condition. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. And so it's a condition. And sin not only is universal, it takes shape in profoundly distinct ways from culture to culture. Some cultures, for example, are totalitarian. While other cultures are anarchic. Um, one culture values freedom until the god of order gets jealous and slays them. Uh, another worships the god of order until the god of chaos and anarchy kicks in. Uh, so you're, you're always, every culture is bowing down to a god. Every culture is privileging uh, the one over the many or the many over the one. 
Sin is socialized differently from culture to culture. Just as we can't let each other off the hook with a shrug saying, well, that's just how she is when we're talking about personal sanctification, it's not enough to describe a culture as if it were a neutral fact. Um, Because of the common curse, even cultures that are nominally Christian can be dangerous can even be more dangerous because they're nominally Christian. Um, While sometimes non-Christian cultures can be remarkably beneficent and noble and courageous and uh, honor sort of uh, 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 values that that, uh, have been held up throughout history as qualities of civil justice and truth. Nobility. That's because all of us share in a common curse and all of us share in in common grace. Because of the common curse, no culture or period in history can be as bad as it could possibly be. Sorry, as good as it could possibly be. So the common curse. But because of God's common grace, no culture or people or language or uh, nation can be as bad as it could possibly be. God preserves every culture from collapsing into that which it would logically collapse into uh, if left to itself. So proper sensitivity to diverse cultural contexts in missions and evangelism is something uh, that we need to respect, but it's sometimes turned into an ideology that undermines the gospel itself. Uh, I, I think of, uh, you know, the way a lot of, you look at seminary catalogs, I know, it's just, it's a uh, kind of nerdy thing to do, but seminary teachers do that sort of thing. Um, and you look at them, and, and a, lot of, a lot of seminaries these days, they're, they're getting rid of the biblical languages, for example, and, and theology. Uh, they are... Uh, uh, what are they doing? They're filling all of those hours with uh, youth ministry and Latino ministry and African American ministry and, and women and men men's and women's ministries, and then they take it down a notch to uh, you know uh, 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 young men between the ages of 12 and 14 who like to ride unicycles. You know, it just the thing becomes absurd. It becomes crazy. Um, well, we have to be contextual. You know, we have to we have to uh, we have to know where people are. And, and fundamentally, the Bible says, well, we yeah. I mean, we've got to be sensitive to where people are in terms of culture and race and so forth. Yeah, I mean, we can't be in. We, we have to be careful not to not to impose our culture on other people. At the end of the day, the most important, the most important location in which you find yourself is going to go where the people are. Well, the the people are in Adam. That's where you got to go. You got to you got you're you're talking to people, black, white, Hispanic, Irish, Dutch. You're talking to people who are in Adam, and you would like for them to be in Christ. Those are the two locations <laughs> that are most fundamental. 
It's not that the others aren't important. People bring, as I say, they bring their language and their ethnicity and their, their uh, uh, heritage with them into the kingdom of God. But the ultimate question is, are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Turning pastors into connoisseurs of their own consumer profile builds churches with cultural hegemony. In other words, sameness. Uh, a pastor who has really learned not the faith for all once delivered to the saints, but the uniqueness and distinctives of his preferred cultural demographic is going to build a church made up of people who look a lot like him, sound a lot like him, shop at the places where he shops, listen to the music that he listens to. Uh, it's not going to be a spiritual unity of faith and practice, but a cultural unity that dominates. Now, at the same time, again, I'm, you know, don't want the pendulum to swing so far to the other end. When you think of Christ's person and work, for example, there have been times in history and in places in history where it has turned out to have different emphases than those emphases that we uh, see in other times and places. For example, when Augustine was converted, he, uh, he, he read uh, Romans 12, and uh, it, uh, actually he heard it. Uh, 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 he heard a boy saying, take up and read, take up and read. And he, he picked up a New Testament, and right there where it opened, uh, Romans 12, uh, uh, no longer be engaged in drunken, drunkenness and revelry. Uh, and he was, he was cut to the quick. And he says, I know that it's the simplest thing, but it was just, it was the thing that, that drove me to my knees. Now, of course, later he became the, the great uh, champion of the doctrines of grace. But there, at his conversion, the first thing that really hit him was, repent of your licentious lifestyle and embrace Jesus Christ. And so... The first thing for, for Augustine that he ran into with the gospel was liberation from a life of debauchery. Anselm in the 11th century was living in a period of feudal Europe where in feudalism, you know, you have this, this great uh, uh, list of manners, nobl uh, 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 nobility uh, that you're supposed to... Uh, 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 to extend uh, um, to those who are higher than you. And so you're, you're supposed to uh, tip your hat to the right people, uh, curtsy and bow in just the right way. And Anselm thinks of the atonement of Jesus Christ as providing satisfaction to God as king for his offended dignity. Well, there's, some, you know, there, there are a lot of similarities between his satisfaction theory and the one that the reformers taught, uh, the one that Paul teaches, but it's a little different. It's based on feudalism. <coughs> Basically, if you, if, you, uh, if, if you slap the king on the face with your glove, you have to pay the penalty. You have offended his dignity. And... An infinitely glorious king 
requires an infinite penalty for his offended dignity. Well, that's not really our doctrine. Our doctrine is the justice of God, not the dignity of God. God has already been handled, has, has always handled his dignity okay. He'll be all right. You know, he's often descend, condescended beneath his dignity. That's not a problem for God. God isn't worried about his dignity too much. He can't bend his justice. He can accommodate to us. He can condescend to us. He can do all sorts of things that are beneath his dignity. But he can't do anything that, that transgresses his justice. And that's something that Ansel missed. And one of the thing, reasons he missed that was because he was thinking about God the way he thought about Charlemagne. And uh, so, you know, it, it makes a difference. And then if you talk to African brothers and sisters living right now, uh, they will often tell you that one of the things that, that Jesus meant to them, first of all, was that in his death and resurrection, he was victorious over the powers of Satan and uh, the evil forces at work in their lives. And they'll tell you some really spooky stories about how evil was at work in their lives, how they were bound uh, with chains by demons. And so there are different uh, contexts that help shape the different ways that we talk about the gospel. And there's plenty in the Bible that, tell, that says all of that, all of what I just said. In Colossians uh, 2, for instance, uh, 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 we read that Christ has triumphed over the powers of evil, all of the evil forces. Comma, by nailing to the cross all of the debts against us. Satisfaction, substitutionary atonement. You see, all of that brought together in the gospel. The gospel isn't many things, but it's a diamond with many facets. And it stands to reason that every time we, we should be open to seeing a new facet, a new sparkle that we've never seen before, that will not come because it is shorn merely of any cultural bias, but precisely in and through a different language, a different culture, a different period of history, a different way of understanding and stating the gospel. The, uh, you know, look at the, the way... Uh, Regardless of, of our theology of mission, regardless of our view of contextualization, regardless of how much we think we ought to give to multiculturalism in the task of missions and evangelism, it just is being pressed upon us that Christianity is no longer uh, a Western phenomenon. Now, we knew that all along, and you know, if you study church history at all, you know that Christianity uh, was a Middle Eastern and North African phenomenon for a lot longer than it was a, a uh, Western uh, uh, phenomenon. But especially today, especially today, talk about Christianity being a mainly Western phenomenon, which you hear on the left, uh, with a criticism of 
of Christianity as white, middle class, western, male, and so forth. Uh, or by those who want to say we don't need to hear uh, the voices of others uh, in other parts of the world. We're the ones who have the, the, the heritage. Uh, in either case, both on the left and on the right, we need to hear the facts about where Christianity has shifted. The Christian, the balance of Christian growth has moved from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere. This is well documented. Uh, it's all over the place. Ninety uh, percent of the world's Christians in Europe and North America in the 20th century. In the 20th century, 90% of the world's Christians lived in Europe and North America. 90%. But by the end of the 20th century, at least 75% were in Latin America, Africa, Asia, and the Pacific. That is, that is the huge, the, the, the most significant seismic uh, shift in the history of Christianity. And so now we're more likely to find a Korean missionary when we are in Paris and a, an Indian missionary when we are in Pakistan than we are an American or, or, or British missionary anywhere in the world. There are at most 500,000 conservative, Reformed, and Presbyterian Christians in the Napark churches. Half a million. There are one and a half million conservative Presbyterians in Mexico. There are more Reformed, conservative, confessional Reformed Christians in Nigeria than in all of North America. India is now the largest sending missionary country in the world. These are just mind-boggling facts that make us realize that we're going to be transformed by the two-thirds world. The church is going to be a much more multicultural reality simply by virtue of the fact that its balance has now shifted from the north to the south. And so we're going to... In China, in China, they estimate that in 20 years, China will be the most populous Christian country. And, and you know, if we think that we're in the driver's seat... We're not in the driver's seat, and that's good, because we're going to learn some things, and our theology is going to change a little bit. And you see, we've got to be open to that. We've got to be open to seeing. Here's my point. Here's my point, and I'll draw it to a close. I think that there are two ways to approach this whole business of contextualization. One is to say, let's have different churches catering to different needs and different demographics and really contextualize things. Let's have African theologies and let's have Asian theologies. We can't really have Asian theology. You have to have Pacific 
theology, a, a Chinese theology, a Korean theology, because, of the, you know, you have to have micro, it just gets micro theology. Let's, let's go in that direction. My, my challenge is, is to say, no, let's, let's be, have more Catholic theologies where we actually have to sit down with our brothers and sisters and listen for a change. Brothers and sisters who are not, in my case, white, middle class, born and raised in Southern California. You know, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, let, the, let this group over here go and develop their own theology. A nice little curiosity that we have on the bookshelf. Quite a different thing if we say, no, you know, actually, you have to come up with a theology together. You have to actually pray together. You have to actually receive communion together. You have to actually, yeah, th- that's how it works. It's, it's sort of, uh, you don't get to pick your favorite uh, station on the dial. Um, this is going to be a little hard for us because we're not in charge. And it's called the body of Christ. There are not many Gospels but one. And there are not many Catholic churches but one Catholic church that is present in a vast plurality of local manifestations connected to each other in a bond of mutual admonition and correction. And so God is our most decisive, Christ is our most decisive location, and we need to become advocates for God, not advocates for our group, whatever that group is, but advocates for God. That is at the heart of the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations. Let me quit with one example of what happened. Okay, two. Really, really quick examples. (laughs) If we go... uh, fall off on one side or the other here. John Spong, um, of recent memory, um, the liberal bishop who sort of gives liberalism a new face, uh, he, uh, uh, liberal Episcopal bishop, raised a fundamentalist and then turned very sharply against it, said a number of years ago at the Lambeth Conference of the world, of Worldwide Anglicanism, uh, when most of the African and Asian bishops uh, uh, protested and said, we won't even show up for the Lambeth Conference, which is the Conference of Worldwide Anglicanism. Um, bishop Spong, the inimitable Bishop Spong, open-minded, uh, visionary, progressive Bishop Spong, said to the media, well, what do you expect? They were, they were just animists only a generation ago. That was good to the taste and to the stomach, I have to admit. To hear Bishop Spong say that, because here, here is Mr. Sensitive, Mr. Multicultural, Mr. And he, when it comes to orthodoxy, when it comes to the truth, when it came to the fact that these bishops at the cost of their own jobs and lives and so forth, were standing for the gospel over against a white, middle-class, male, hierarchical establishment in London. It was that hierarchical, white, middle-class, male, Western institution that Bishop Spong was defending over against 
those poor benighted people who have not even had a decent Harvard education. If they had, then they would realize how foolish Christian orthodoxy really is. But the acids of modernity haven't done their work yet uh, on these poor, inferior people. And that's really what, what was coming out of... That is... What we're seeing, what we're seeing right now is, is in traditions like Anglicanism, churches being willing to break off of the Anglican communion and become closer to churches like ours, precisely because they agree with Christians who live in other times and places and are of different races and tongues and languages and tribes but who speak the same gospel. And we're seeing that happen all over the place as well. It's very encouraging. The other, the other thing I was going to mention very, very, very quickly is um, a cautionary tale from uh, the uh, experience of apartheid in South, America, uh, in South Africa uh, as uh, explained by John DeGrucci. Um, according to some of the leading theologians who challenged the racial system of apartheid, um, apartheid evolved out of a missionary strategy. According to John DeGrucci, Reformed churches were not segregated until, quote, the mid-19th century revivals by holiness preacher Andrew Murray and pietistic missionaries. He adds, it was under the dominance of such evangelicalism rather than the strict Calvinism of Dort that the Dutch Reformed Church agreed at its Synod of 1857 that congregations could be divided along racial lines. Despite the fact that this development went against all earlier synodical decisions that segregation in the church was wholly contrary to the word of God, it was rationalized on grounds of missiology and practical necessity. Missiologically, it was argued that people who were best evangelized and best worshipped God in their own language and cultural setting, a position reinforced by German Lutheran missiology and somewhat akin to the church growth philosophy taught at Fuller Seminary. Um, interesting. Uh, Alan Bozak who was one of the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement, says exactly the same thing in his book, Black and Reformed. He points out that the Synod of Dort, that gave us the five points of Calvinism, the Synod of Dort actually uh, uh, said that uh, uh, there could be no slaves held uh, uh, by Christians. Synod of Dort 16, 18, and 19, very early on, that baptism immediately released a slave, which is why the Dutch East India Company didn't want the Dominis to baptize. Anyway. Um, so the, you know, there has always been this danger of the church trying in, in, in all sincerity to reach particular niches and demographics for the church to actually find other magnets of unity than the gospel, other centers of uh, brotherhood other than Christ.
And uh, we have seen that again and again and again. When we allow something other than the gospel to determine the identity of the church, our mission becomes an extension of the powers of this present age which are dying. Instead of being that place of opening up to the powers of the age to come as they break in on this present evil age and rearrange the furniture. And I'm glad to be in a surprising place where God picks my brothers and sisters. And I feel more at home than I am at a family reunion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a great gospel that brings us together around that table, that feast, as we prepare for the age to come. And even now, in the heavenly worship, uh, the music is being uh, prepared, the harps are being tuned, and uh, the great strains are being anticipated of that wonderful song that we read about in Revelation 5.9. As before the Lamb, people are gathered, throwing down their crowns and saying, Praise to the Lamb, for you have purchased with your blood people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God forever. In his name we pray. Amen. Nicely done. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>